So I was reading a story um, the other day about Twitter. And uh, the story was about a famous, I think he was Australian musician, and he was sitting on a plane next to a lady who was listening to his album a lot in the, through the entire flight. The plane had Wi-Fi, and so the singer was tweeting about the strange experience of sitting next to a woman listening to his music on a loop, and obviously loud enough that he could hear it. Throughout his Twitter conversation, people who followed him were tweeting him things he could say to her to drop hints that he was the musician she was listening to without him openly saying it because he thought that that would be prideful or conceited. She never caught on and with about an hour or so left in the flight she began to tell him why she listened to his music, why she liked it so much and what it meant to her. She even asked him to listen to parts of it that she specifically liked or had a specific meaning to her. The singer was tweeting about how nice this experience was because he was hearing, what he was hearing was genuine, what she really thought about the music. She wasn't just flattering him and trying to impress him like she might if she knew who he was. When she went to the bathroom just before they came to start landing, he left her a note and two tickets to his concert in the city that they were flying to, which was why he was on the plane. Later she tweeted him a message saying she was thankful for the tickets and couldn't believe she didn't know it was him. Um, now she could see, looking back, all the hints he had given her, the lines of the songs, his own songs he was quoting, how he was hinting subtly and humbly that he was the singer she liked, and she, he was actually sitting next to her. <clears throat> In hindsight, all hints make sense. God, throughout the history of mankind, has given us hints about his plan for salvation. And his plan to send Jesus Christ to be our King, our Lord, our Saviour, and our friend. As we study the Bible, we see these hints, and we have the benefit of hindsight for a lot of them, though there are still many hints about Jesus' second coming that still leave us scratching our heads. We said last time that it was a Calvary Limerick core that Jesus is in every page of the Bible. He is central to Scripture because he's the subject of it all, and he is central to our lives because he is Lord of all. But you wouldn't believe he is king and he is saviour and he is our God without proof, right? So another story about celebrities being mistaken. Jared Padalecki, who plays Sam Winchester in Supernatural, was in New Orleans for a Supernatural convention where fans get to meet the stars and hear panels and discussions about the show that they like to watch. And he was meeting a friend but he didn't know where he was going. Um, so he stopped into a cafe to use their Wi-Fi. Um, and while he was in there, somebody came up to him and told him his Sam Winchester costume was amazing and he looked exactly like the character. They didn't get it was him, but thought he was somebody pretending to be Sam. We don't want to follow a pretender on something that's as important as our eternal lives. If Jesus is who he says he is, it's foolish not to follow him and give our lives to him. But if he's just a pretender, and he isn't, then we could dismiss him. He isn't, so we can't dismiss him. He's the real deal. Let's just pray. God, we thank you for hindsight. We thank you for the Bible that we can look back and we can see um, all of the things that you were doing to reveal who you are, to reveal who Jesus is to us. 
Thank you for your word, for how powerful it is, for how relevant it is to us, to our lives today as well, Lord. We thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would um, speak through your word and that we would learn something and that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. In your name I pray. Amen. So I was talking about proof. And what is proof? Just like the singers hinted who he was, God has left hints in the Bible for us about who the Messiah would be. These are called prophecies of the Messiah. The Messiah is the one God would send to deal with the separation of people from God and our sin problem. Jesus fulfills these prophecies and somebody has even applied mathematical science of probability to biblical prophecy fulfillment and the odds are 1 in 10 to the power of 157 which is 10 with 157 zeros after it. I don't even know if our numbers go that high that somebody could fulfill those prophecies but Jesus fulfilled them all. We're going to start our study into Jesus' claim to be the Messiah in the book of Matthew in the Bible. It's the first book in the New Testament and has been believed through church history to have been the first eyewitness account of Jesus' life written. In more recent times, people have claimed Mark was written first and that Matthew used Mark to write about the events that he wasn't there for. But Peter, who is the source behind the Gospel of Mark, was. And he did know these things. I don't think it matters whether you hold a view that Matthew was written first or that Mark was written first. Either way, Matthew was an eyewitness of the events. The book has been dated to the late 40s, excuse me, AD, or the early 50s, which means it was certainly written within 20 years of Jesus' life. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the reliability of the Gospels and the Bible in this church over the coming years. But just to quickly say, accounts of people's lives written in ancient times in history Often we can only date the accounts to within hundreds of years that the person was alive. So 20 years is very close. We need to remember that the Jewish people, of which Matthew was one, would have had an oral and oral learning culture. They had to memorize whole books of the Old Testament as children, so their memories were much more impressive and fine-tuned than ours. So 20 years is really no big deal for recording the message and actions of Jesus in the time period. Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples. He's also called Levi, and we'll come across him in the book because he's actually part of the story himself as one of the twelve apostles. Each of the gospel writers has a different focus and reason for writing their gospel. Matthew wrote largely to a Jewish audience. This means that in his account he will mention things his readers, Jewish readers, would be familiar with, but we probably aren't. So we'll have to spend some time looking at these things in a little bit more detail. It means he uses the Old Testament a lot in his account because his audience would be familiar with it. We again probably aren't as familiar with it because we didn't have to learn the whole thing off by heart as children like the Jews in the first century did. So again we'll have to take some time to look at what the implications of what Matthew is saying is. In fact Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer Revelation, though, is almost entirely a retelling of things found in the Old Testament, but not often quoted. So Matthew wins on quotes. Matthew wrote to the Jews, but what did he write about? What is his emphasis? He wanted to get the point across that Jesus was the promised king of the Jews, the promised Messiah. 
So we see him emphasizing the kingship of Jesus in his gospel. In that vein, we could say that the gospel of Matthew can be broken down into five sections. The first is the king revealed and is in chapters 1 to 10. The second is the king restricted and is in chapters 11 to 13. The third section is the king retreating and is found in chapters 14 to 20. The fourth is the king rejected and is in chapters 21 to 27. And the last section, section 5, is the king resurrected and is in chapter 28. So today we're going to be in the first section, the king revealed in chapter 1. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. I wanted to start with Matthew because it's the first book of the New Testament. The first book chronicling and recording the life of Jesus. We could have started in Genesis, but Jesus is the object of our faith and it's best to begin with him and his life. And also Matthew begins with a genealogy, which is what we're going to look at today. And it, show, it will touch on a number of characters in the Old Testament. So it's kind of a cool place to start. I'm calling this series through the book of Matthew unmasking majesty, but it doesn't mean that Jesus was hiding and has to be unmasked like a Scooby-Doo villain. I can guarantee you that at the end of studying Matthew, Jesus is not going to say, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids and your stupid dog too. He isn't hiding his majesty. He was very plain about who he was to people. He knew would understand who he is. We are unmasking in the sense that we're going to search through it for ourselves and find the evidence for Jesus being our Messiah our Saviour and our God. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's a fun line with the names. 
I'm not going to Greek out on you too much doing sermons. We'll only talk about Greek when it's necessary, normally. But right now I'm going to Greek out a little bit. In verse 1 it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that word genealogy in Greek is Genesis. The word that we use for the first book of the Bible. Genesis is the word that means beginnings. And the book of Genesis in the Bible is the book of beginnings. And it's full of genealogies, just like that section with really difficult to pronounce names when you're reading it out. They are begin- they, genealogies are the beginnings. The beginnings of a person and where they come from and what their lineage is. And for Jewish people, they were very important. They prove that a person is who they say they are. And Matthew includes Jesus' genealogy for that very reason. He is seeking to prove from Jesus' lineage that Jesus is who he says he is. One commentator called Wearsby says, Since royalty depends on heredity, since royalty depends on heredity, it was important for Jesus to establish his rights to David's throne. That's what's happening with this genealogy. We're seeing Jesus' human lineage, his earthly lineage. So note the first two things that Matthew points out about Jesus. First is that he's the son of David, which would point to Jesus' royal lineage. And remember, Matthew is interested in showing that Jesus is the king. David was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that from his line, from his family, the Messiah would come. So not only is Matthew saying that Jesus is the king in this very first line, but he's also saying that he is the Messiah. The second thing Matthew records about Jesus is that he is the son of Abraham. This is important because Abraham is seen as the founder of the Jewish nation and of the Jewish faith, and Matthew is writing to Jewish people. He's often called the father of the faith. And just like with David, Abraham was promised that the Messiah would come from his descendants, from his line. In Genesis 22:17 to 18, God promises Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That last offspring in the Hebrew is singular. By one of Abraham's descendants, the whole earth will be blessed. Commenting on this section of Matthew and pointing to that section of Genesis, Chuck Smith, who is the founder of Calvary Chapel, notes, So anyone who would seek to lay claim to be the Messiah would first of all have to be able to prove that he was a descendant of Abraham because God had made that special promise to Abraham. So Matthew, in saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham, is saying he has that claim, that he is the promised Messiah, the one God said would bless the nations. We're not going to go through each of these names individually, but what we will do is we'll see little bits and pieces about what I think God is saying and why God has included a whole big long list of names um, at the very start of the New Testament. So your first four names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Judah, I think it's interesting to note that none of them are the eldest son of their father. Isaac's older brother was Ishmael, Jacob's older brother was Esau, 
And Judah had three older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And Judah was the son of Leah. So this is, could be a main point here. In the culture of the time, the eldest son was the important son. The eldest son inherited everything. But that's not the way it is with God. The covenant and the blessings of the Lord are passed not to the eldest, but to the faithful. This tells us that God is looking for those he will use, not the highest position. He's not looking for the people that have the highest position in society. But he's looking to the person, for the person who will respond when he calls. And for us, that should be very encouraging. In verse 3, we have something else worthy of note. The first of the women is mentioned. There are five women mentioned in the genealogy. The first in verse 3 is Tamar. It's unusual for women to be recorded in ancient genealogies, but even especially these women. Tamar and Rahab in verse 5 are both ladies of questionable character. Rahab, we know, was a prostitute, and Tamar pretended to be a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. But God uses everyone, and he can turn lives around. And he did this with Rahab. She's even listed in Hebrews 11, which we often call the Hall of Faith, where the author of Hebrews, probably Paul, said of her, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In, that's in verse 31. Rahab believed the Jewish spies sent into the land by Joshua, one of the leaders of Israel after Moses, and she was saved because she believed them. The walls of Jericho fell, but her home stood, and she married into Israel and became part of Jesus' lineage. She was faithful to God, and God was abundantly faithful to her. That's the second main point we're going to see looking through this genealogy, is the faithfulness of God. We've already sang about it today. God is so faithful. He promised David that the Messiah would come from him. He promised Abraham that by one of his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Matthew is recording the fulfillment of that. Jesus coming to the earth. God's promises being kept. The next woman mentioned is Ruth. And Ruth, like Rahab, was a Gentile. Jews were forbidden from marrying Gentiles, just as Christians today are for really forbidden from marrying non-Christians in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Yet God uses them and even records them in the line of Jesus. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, made an oath to her mother-in-law, Naomi, that her people would be Ruth's people and that Naomi's God would be her God. God uses anyone. Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David and the great, 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 whatever, how many, how many greats, grandmother of Jesus. God is faithful. And the next woman mentioned, number four, is Bathsheba. And she's called the wife of Uriah in verse six. We don't know much about her, but we do know that she cheated on her husband with King David and had his child, eventually becoming one of the queens of Israel after David had Uriah murdered. I think it's interesting that she's not recorded by name. The Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew to, on what to record calls her the wife of Uriah. It's like that's still how God sees her. Uriah's wife, or saw her at the time anyway. We don't know from the narrative in Second Samuel if Bathsheba was party to the decisions David made or whether he forced her using his authority as the king. 
But it's interesting that God records her in the lineage of Christ because God can use anyone to accomplish his will. The next interesting thing, I think, is the kings. From verses 7 to verse 11, we have a list of kings of Israel and Judah when the kingdom split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel isn't recorded, but the southern kingdom of Judah is where the line continues. Not all the kings that we read of in the book of Kings and Chronicles are listed here. It seems to have been that Matthew would have learned off the book of Chronicles, and so he quotes 1 Chronicles 3, 10 to 14 here as his list of kings. As you read through it, you will read of good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. They believed God, they trusted him, they reigned the kingdom like God would have them. But there were other kings that were bad kings. They allowed idol worship into Judah, and they disgraced God, and they disgraced their father David and his line. Unlike in the northern kingdom, whenever there was a king unfaithful to God, God would remove the mantle of power from their family and, ups- and set up a new family as king. But this he never did in Judah with David's family, because he'd made a promise to David. Right up until the nation lost their land to the Babylonians, there was a Davidic king on the throne. However, Jeconiah, who's the last king mentioned before the Babylonian exile in verse 11, he was an evil king. And you can read his story in 2 Kings 24. And verse 2 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I guess he was so evil that God declared none of his descendants would ever sit on David's throne. Jeremiah 22 verse 30 says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his day, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. But wait, I hear you say. The genealogy doesn't stop with Jeconiah, but continues with his son Shealtiel and grandson Zerubbabel and goes on down to Joseph. I think that's kind of the point. This is Joseph's genealogy. Abraham to Joseph, the royal line of Israel. I think God is really amazing. For a man to be the king of Israel and the Messiah, he would have to be of the royal line. He'd have to have a legal claim to the throne. This genealogy that we have in Matthew, that's Jesus' legal claim. Joseph's line contains all of the kings of Judah. It's the line God promised would be king over Israel. It had to be. But there's a problem. The problem is that God declared Jeconiah's descendants wouldn't be able to sit on the throne. So how did God solve that problem? He chose a man to be his son's father, a man from the legal line of David. But Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. He was conceived of the Virgin Mary and not Joseph. So while Jesus is the legal son of Joseph, having a legal right to the throne of Israel, he's not the biological son of Joseph thus allowing him to exercise that right, for he's excluded from the curse put on Joseph's family that they could not sit on the throne. The curse comes to an end with Jesus. I think that's a really good sentence and can be about more than just that specific curse. Because the curse of mankind ends with Jesus as well. He came, he died on the cross to save us from our sins. The curse we are under is sin and death. 
a choice we made when we rebelled against God by choosing sin, choosing to be selfish, and not choosing to do what is right. But the curse comes to an end with Jesus. Note that in verse 16, the language changed. In every, ver- every other verse, it said, the father of. But in verse 16, it says, of whom Jesus was born. In Greek, that's feminine. Because it's not referring to, to Joseph, but to the fifth wor- woman mentioned in this genealogy. Mary, Jesus' mother. Jesus' genealogy through Mary is found in Luke chapter 3. If this has excited you and makes you want to read more biblical genealogies, you can go there. I'm sure it hasn't. But hopefully you'll have a better appreciation of them and their purpose in the Bible. But there's something I don't want you to miss. Many people skip reading these genealogies, but it has a vital part in the Gospel because it shows that Jesus is part of history. He really came, he really lived, and he fits right there into the genealogy of people within history. I think it's a little bit exciting to see the list of names that brought about Jesus' legal right to be counted as our king. Just noticing the different names on there reminds me so much of the faithfulness of God. We see his promises to Abraham being fulfilled, his promises to David being fulfilled, and his promise to us being fulfilled, because he promised he would send a Messiah to make a way for us. God is faithful. Don't ever forget that. There's a saying that when you're born... You can be sure of two things in life, death and taxes. But when you're born again, you can be sure of two things as well, life and God's faithfulness. He will keep his promises, and the Bible is full of these promises. But he is We are faithless, we are fickle, and we are changing. But that's not what God is like. He is faithful, he is sure, and he is unchanging. And he will never leave us or forsake us. As well as this, I want you to note that some of the names are unsavory characters. They aren't people you really want on your family tree. Some of them are like the ones you might hide from people when you start talking about your ancestry. Maybe the modern equivalent might be finding that somewhere back the line, somebody in your family owns slaves. But there they are on Jesus' list. What does it tell us? It tells us that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who is back along your family tree. It tells us that your family shame doesn't have to be your chain. But the grace of God offers us freedom from all these things. By grace through faith, the wrongs of our past and those things that our family line offers us don't matter. In fact, this genealogy shows us that where we stand with God, the only thing that matters is whether we are in Christ or not. He doesn't look at our position. He doesn't look at our background. He doesn't even consider our past sins when we are in him. He looks at us through the lens of Jesus and he will use us for his work for and for his glory, giving our lives meaning and purpose and a mission if only we are willing to go for him. We serve a great God, a faithful God. And finally, we see the grace of God in this. As we look through this list and we hear these stories about these people, we see that the grace of God was at work in each member of Jesus' lineage. We can especially point to Abraham, to Rahab, to David, and to Hezekiah for examples of this, if you want to go look at their stories. Throughout history, the grace of God has been at work, and the grace of God is the operating principle of our relationship with him as well. 
So it is working today too. Last time we were together, we said that a Calvary Limerick core would be that we are a community characterized by the grace of God. It characterizes our relationship with God and should characterize our relationship with one another as well. Jesus is the king. This week we have seen his legal right by his human lineage to be able to claim that he is the king, that he is the Messiah. However, there were and probably are still many men who descended from David. So how does Jesus' claim make him the rightful heir? God's appointed and anointed Messiah. There needs to be more than a human claim for a person to be the Messiah. That is something Matthew is aware of. So next time we meet, we're going to look at the divine claim that Matthew records for us to Jesus being our Lord and Messiah. But for now, Jesus is King. God is faithful. Our past, our position, nothing in life hinders for how God can work in our lives and work through our lives. When we approach him and relate to him by his grace and not by the merits of our position, our past, or our family. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this list of names. Even though it's hard to read, even though we might want to glance over it and just get on to the next bit in verse 18. Lord, these are people whose lives you worked in. People who you brought, some of them Gentiles, into the family line of Christ. We thank you for for each of them, for the things you did in their lives, and for how Matthew recorded it for us to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that nothing about our past or position in life or anything like that matters, Lord, when we come to you, but that it's whether we're in Christ or not. We thank you that that is by faith and that we we don't have to do anything, Lord, to come to you. Just believe and receive all these blessings. Lord, we pray this week that we would remember your faithfulness and remember your love for us and remember your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.